0: Well, we are in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke, and last week we looked at Jesus calming the storm by rebuking it by His Word, and how that event maps directly onto chapter 1 of the book of Jonah. And there's, there's way too much for me to recap from last week, but it's enough to see uh, Jesus as not merely a faithful prophet, whereas Jonah was clearly running from God, but that Jesus is the God of Jonah. Come. Come in the flesh who commands things like the weather by his speech in fact this is what the new testament claims that jesus is the creation's maker and it answers to his voice he is the word of genesis 1 the one through through whom and for whom all things were made as paul says in colossians 1 and like jonah jesus was in the midst of the stormy sea which to the hebrew mind was associated with chaos like what you see in Genesis one, with the deep waters covering the initial creation that was void and without form, and you see the same idea at work with Noah and the flood, which was God's judgment on sinful humanity, who had, if you remember, defiled the land through their violence. So they were Cain pouring out each other's blood on a large scale, and the flood was an act of de-creation, bringing the world back to its Genesis one origins as being void and without form, even as it was an act of recreation with God separating the dry lands from the waters and reestablishing humanity's place in the world. That's all in play when they thought about the sea. But to the Hebrew mind, the sea was also associated with the Gentiles. So if Israel was the dry land, And Israel was the people of the land. That's how they thought of themselves, ordered in relationship to God's presence, separated out from the Gentiles. You see the Genesis 1 imagery there. The Gentiles, in turn, were the chaotic sea surrounding the promised land, living under the false dominion of evil spiritual beings. So Jesus then faithfully crosses the sea, and goes into the Gentile world just as Jonah went to Nineveh. But what happens next, though? Uh, while generally following still the contours of Jonah's story, it maps almost directly onto the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat. Well, that said, let, let's pick it up with chapter 8, verse 26. It's a fairly long passage, but a very interesting one at that. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed." Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had, had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Jesus is the light of the world, and he is the light in our midst. Through your spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts set on you, and feet that will follow the light, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as an aside, Lord, as it seems to happen, and maybe this is simply anecdotal on my part, it seems every time I mention demons or talk about spiritual evil in any significant sense, seems like my throat uh, gets scratchy and it's hard to speak at times or there are many distractions that happen within us that take our, our eyes away. So Lord, I pray, we should pray this every Sunday, but I pray especially today that you would protect us in this time that we may learn from your son about who he is, who he has conquered, and how he is ruling even now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we pick it up with verse 26, Jesus and the disciples sail across the Sea of Galilee, and they land in a fully Gentile area. This is just like Jonah, like I just mentioned a few minutes ago. And upon arriving on the land, Jesus is met by a man from the nearby city who had not one demon, but demons, plural. And as Luke tells us, uh, the number of demons in the man, as we will get to, was legion. That is, at least a thousand of them. And he's He's really playing off of the Roman uh, ideal of a legion at that point. So this is military marching demons, so to speak. Now, the man was naked and living among the tombs. And in Mark's account uh, of the event, the man was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. That is, he was literally, in the Greek, self-stoning. That is, he was stoning himself. And as Satan is the accuser of God's people, so this man filled with a thousand demons was constantly being accused of his sin. And in turn, he tried to stone himself like the Jews would do to a rebellious son, according to the law. this is why, for example, the Jews stoned Paul in Lystra after he preached about Jesus. They saw him as a rebellious son. So this man, too, is stoning himself. So this man lived in the perpetual shame of nakedness. He lived in perpetual uncleanness among the dead in the cemetery. He was perpetually being accused by demons and was perpetually and unsuccessfully trying to destroy himself by stoning. So when the man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. The demons as as fallen and rebellious uh, spiritual servants of God, that's what they originally were, but they can't help but cry out and address Jesus as divine royalty. They say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment torment me. So, so we can make two quick observations right off the bat about this scene. First, demons do have real power, and they do inflict real pain and suffering in this real world. And it is not hard to see that in America right now. And so they are not to be trifled with or to be taken lightly. We should not fear them either, but they're not to be taken lightly. Jesus warns as much in Luke chapter 10. Second, they are not only inferior to God, he made them after all, and they rebelled against him. So they absolutely fear him, right? A lot of times in the the world's mind, it's, it's Satan and, and Jesus, or Satan and God is if they're equal. That is not the case, not even close. They are his creations, and they absolutely fear him. So while we have nothing to fear of evil spiritual beings, they cannot possess what the Holy Spirit possesses. Even so, as we see throughout the New, New Testament, it is foolish to treat them lightly or fool around with them. Jesus, though, not Satan, Jesus is their king. Think about that. Jesus is their king, and they rightly bow the knee to him, even as they know that inescapable judgment is coming for them. In verse 29, Luke tells us that Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, and then gives us this aside. The man had been kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So that alone raises more than a few questions for us about this passage. I mean, why didn't the people of the city just kill him, right? This this is the ancient world, right? So they don't have asylums. They don't have mental health programs. It was very brutal back then. Why not just kill him? Why go to the trouble of keeping him under guard and in chains? And why would the demons break those bonds and drive the man into the desert? Well, we get even more questions when we tack on the very next verse when Jesus asks for his name and he says, legion or a thousand. Well, to understand what's happening in this very strange moment for us, we need to read it in light of Leviticus 16 and the day of atonement. And I know what you're thinking, what? As I said in the session, meaning... To the Hebrew mind, they would have said, of course, to modern Protestant evangelicals, they say, what is Leviticus and why should I read it? That's why this seems strange. But I'm telling you, I'm going to walk you through right now and you'll see it. Now, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. The wilderness or the desert in the Hebrew mind functions in a very similar kind of symbolic way to the sea, like what we were talking about. That's why I took as much time in the beginning to talk about the sea. The wilderness if you just think through it, is where the wild things are. Right? And by wild things, it didn't just have in mind wild, untamable creatures, like say lions or hyenas, though that's that's true enough, but the wilderness was also considered the haunt or the dwelling of evil spiritual beings, that is, of demons. Now, this thinking about the wilderness is only superstitious, it's only crazy if there's no such thing as demons. But there are such things as demons. The Day of Atonement of Leviticus 16 gets at all of this. So I'm not going to cover that whole chapter, but if you look for the kind of central in that ritual, during the ritual, Aaron the high priest was to take one bull and one ram and offer them as a sin offering and a burnt offering so that he may be atoned for and in turn go before the Lord in the holy place. So as a high priest, he carried sin too. So he had to be atoned for as well. So the high priest had to have his sin atoned for in order to go into the holy place, which was outside of the Holy of Holies. Then two male goats were taken from the people, and Aaron was to bring them to the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the people are offering these these two goats. And so they take them to the gate of the tent. This is the tabernacle, right? Very much like how Cain and Abel brought their offerings really to what seems to be the gate of Eden. And by the casting of lots, one of the goats was chosen as a sin offering to God for the people, and the other goat was chosen to carry the sins of the people into the wilderness to Azazel, which was a Canaanite demon. And as the book of Hebrews makes clear, animals cannot atone for the sins of people or for Aaron the high priest for that matter. Only another human can do that. So the Day of Atonement is symbolic. And I know when I say that, modern people say, oh, not real. No, no, no. It dramatizes what would be ultimately and truly fulfilled in Christ, who is both a high priest who needs no atonement and the only human who can atone for humanity. So it's playing out in real, physical, tangible tangible ways what was coming in the Messiah. It's just like how the Lord's Supper dramatizes the true reality of what we have in Christ. You really eat bread. You really drink wine. And it's a symbolic ritual, even as God actually promises to work through that ritual. But for our passage today, let's just focus on that second goat, right? Otherwise known as the scapegoat. Leviticus initially was written to God's people after the exodus from Egypt during their 40-year stint in the wilderness. And Israel's camp, by God's command, was arranged as this symbolic Eden. So a light in the midst of the darkness of the wilderness with God and his tabernacle in the center of his people. So the camp's arrangement, by God's own command, was intended really to picture Genesis 1 through 3. The tabernacle was the garden sanctuary within Eden because there's the land of Eden and then there's the garden sanctuary with Eden. So the tabernacle was where the two trees were in the garden. The Israelite camp was the larger land of Eden and then the wilderness is the area outside of Eden. And so the high priest symbolically lays the sins of the people on this goat, the scapegoat, in the same way that you might see me take the bread and break it. Right? I purposely, we purposely have a loaf in that cup there, so you can see it being broken, so the people could see him lay his hand on this goat. So he, he does this. He lays his, his, the sins of the people on the goat, the scapegoat, and then they send it out into the wilderness, from the Eden sanctuary to the place of spiritual evil to Azazel, a demon. Now, unlike the first goat offered to God, the scapegoat is not an offering. It's not an appeasement. No, it was the sin of the people being sent out from the holiness of God's presence in Eden to the unclean habitation of demons in the wilderness where sin belongs. Sin belongs with Azazel. You eat that, Azazel. Eat the sin of the people. That's what's in view there. So what is in view then when we come to Luke 8 is a man functioning as a scapegoat for the people of the Gerasenes in the wilderness. And the Holy One of Israel was going out to the haunt, to the dwelling of demons. Only this man was not a symbolic scapegoat. He's not a goat. No, he literally carried the people's demons within him. That's why they didn't kill him. That's why they didn't kill him. It's why they guarded him in chains. They wanted him to be their scapegoat. They wanted him to carry the unclean demons in their place. They wanted him to carry their shame of nakedness. They wanted him to be accused in their place. They wanted him to be stoned. It's better for one man to suffer instead of a whole city. Better this man endure this than all of us endure this. In an article from 2013, Rich Bledsoe comments, and this again is anecdotal, that a Christian pastor, friend of his, from India, so it's an Indian pastor, once told him that the power of the witch doctor in India is the power of being able to command lesser demons to leave by the power of a greater demon. In such a situation, the demons are never banished, they just transfer place or position though I have, of course, no way to verify whether that Indian pastor is right or not. I've never met a witch doctor. It does line up with what Jesus says in Matthew 12, that a demon may be cast out, but it goes looking for somewhere else to go and often will come back to the first house, that is, the first person, and bring more demons with him. So the Jews fully accepted the idea that demons could both possess a person and be cast out. In fact. They accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, that is, the prince of demons, or the lord of the flies, or as we would call him, Satan. Which makes me think, perhaps they had towns, like this one in the Gerasenes, in mind. And so perhaps a witch doctor type person, and who knows, it could have been a priest of some pagan god, or whatever it may be. By the actual power of a stronger demon, cast all these other lesser demons into one man. And the city happily approved of it. Now, regardless of how it happened, and I I admit here I'm being somewhat speculative, what is in view is a man possessed by demons who literally functions as a scapegoat, the one sent to Azazel. Now, in verse 31... The demons beg Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. Notice that there's no struggle here, right? Jesus does not have to fight them. He doesn't have to try and subdue them in order to make them go. If he commands them to go, they're going to go. As Jesus says in Matthew 12, he is the strong man. Whereas the town could not successfully bind legion, though they tried, with chains and shackles for any length of time, right? Jesus, like with the storm in the previous passage, he can bind a legion of demons with his word. So they beg Jesus to let them enter into the herd of pigs, which it's about 2000 of them as Mark tells it, and they are they are they're feeding on the hillside not far off. And it's it's unclear whether the demons are actually referring to the the pigs that are right there, or to the town itself, as in let us, if you won't let us do this to this one man, let us go possess the whole town. What do you care, Jesus? They're a bunch of Gentiles. And to the demons, both the pigs and the town are unclean animals, meat bags to control. And so it makes little difference to them, I think, who they possess. And Jesus does not allow them to possess the people, obviously, but he gives them over to the pigs, which drives them mad, just like it had driven the man mad. And they rush down the hillside into the sea, which again is a symbol of the very thing they were trying to avoid, the abyss. In fact, if you look at a lot of Jewish intertestamental literature, so basically between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, this is how they often refer to these things in terms of the abyss. So in other words... Jesus didn't give in to their request to escape the judgments, though perhaps they, they assumed maybe they had outwitted him by as, asking for the pigs. Though, in fact, he judged them on the spot. He judged them on the spot and sent them to their final judgment in the abyss, or as we typically think of it, as hell. So it's very much like what we see. We will see later on when we get to Luke chapter 10, after the 72 disciples have been sent out and they, they return from their their missionary journey around Israel, they say to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And in response, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That's a clear link to Genesis 3 and the promise that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, serpent. That's that's Jesus. He's the offspring, and through his victory on the cross, which was really already coming into the world, his victory over Satan, he has given the same victory to his people too. That's why the seventy-two can cast out demons in his name, in Jesus' name. And so Jesus describes Satan's defeat as Satan falling from the heavens like lightning, or as Paul describes Satan in Ephesians chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. So Jesus sees him falling like lightning, which means it's fast. So just as the pigs rush down into the sea, so Satan falls from heaven like lightning. And now, like what happened in this Gentile city, God's people now. God's people Now, through Christ, go into the wilderness or the desert where serpents and scorpions, that is where demons are, and no longer fear them. We no longer fear them because their dominion and their power is at an end. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan is not still at work in the world. Clearly, he is. And it doesn't mean that we can't be hurt by him, as Job obviously demonstrates, Rather, it means that the decisive battle has been won. It's not even a question. And what is left is merely a mop-up operation for God. Well, in verse 34, Luke tells us that the herdsmen saw what had happened and they fled. They went back to the city to tell people. And when the people came out to see for themselves, what they find is the man, clothed in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus, and this terrifies them. This scares them. So the man's shame, his sin, his uncleanness has been removed from him. He's redeemed. He's clothed, right? He's, been, he's put on a new robe and has become a disciple. He's sitting at Jesus' feet, and he wants to follow Jesus. Now, instead, like the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, if you remember that story... Jesus turns him into an evangelist instead of saying, follow me. He turns him into an evangelist for that entire area. But unlike the townspeople in Samaria and John 4, these people of the Gerasenes, they do not come out to hear Jesus from a sense of curiosity. No, they ask him to leave. And I think the reason for this is simple enough to understand. When a community loses its scapegoat, it it disrupts... The whole community in ways that make people very uncomfortable. So losing the scapegoat changes the relational dynamics of a group or of a community. And the reason is because it causes people to have to look at themselves more clearly because they no longer have the scapegoat as a release or as the person, or in some cases a whole people group, to put their sin onto or their anxieties onto, or their fears onto. That's why we love gossip. That's why we love gossip. Gossip is using another person to put our sin or our hatred or our fear onto. That's why we so easily blame those people for what ails our community. And so we easily put our fears and our anxieties on them. But what happens when the scapegoat is no longer the scapegoat? What happens when the life of the party, for example, the guy you can always count on to out drink everybody, to get the most hammered, what happens when he gets sober? Well, in my experience as a a former smoker, when I quit, I completely disrupted my friend group and in turn wound up losing all of them as friends, and they were all Christians. When someone gets healthy, or loses weight, or quits drinking, or whatever it is, it often shines a light on everyone else, and they don't like it, they don't like it. You think you're better than me? Are you trying to make me look bad? I was on a run yesterday, and as I passed some friends, guess what they said to me? Haha, are you trying to make us look bad? Were they joking? No, I'm just on a run. But that's how that works. That's how that works. What happens when the person who always provided the joke or the comic relief to break the family tension—you know, when it's really tight—and ha ha ha—now we can just relax. Thanksgiving dinner? What happens when he no longer has a joke? What happens when the enabling father quits giving in to the whims of his adult child? You know, chances are the peace is over and all hell will break loose. And it's bad enough when you have to endure the temper tantrum of a two-year-old that you've been enabling. Tantrums of emotionally toddler-like adults who are used to getting their way, they're terrifying. They're terrifying. And as Rene Girard points out, the loss of a scapegoat is no small thing for a community because it forces us to have to deal with our sin or our failure instead of piling it onto someone else. And the thing is, scapegoats do bind people together. They do. And they do provide a certain kind of peace, even in places like the garrisons. So in our passage, even as the people, I'm sure they hated this man and despised him. They still needed him. They needed him to be this man. And you can still hear this in any given day in this town as someone refers to, again, Those people, or the libs, or the woke, or whatever has become the symbol of evil and all that is wrong in America today. So what happens when we no longer have those people to blame for the sins and evil of our town? Well, we naturally go looking for a new enemy, a new scapegoat. As Luke 23 points out, Pilate and Herod, who had previous to Jesus... Hated each other. They forged a friendship in the death of Jesus Christ. So like the town in our passage, they had forged a friendship in their mutual hatred of this man. Now, had Jesus chosen to kill the man, which is what most people would assume a conquering hero, a good king would do, the town probably would have rejoiced and would have in due time simply found a new scapegoat. So like with gossip, they they would have gone looking for a new person to put their sin and their shame and their fears and hatred onto. But instead, Jesus frees the scapegoat by destroying the demons. But still, that man's redemption, like the scapegoat of Leviticus 16, is dependent on the scapegoat to come, which is Jesus himself. Now circle back to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Again, as Hebrews points out, animals cannot atone for a human. And as we see in our passage, a sinful human cannot be an appropriate scapegoat for our sin either, and yet that sin still needs to be dealt with. So Jesus, like he does for Barabbas, would take the place of the demon-possessed man and would in turn be publicly shamed in his nakedness. He would be bound. He would take on the sin in uncleanness of the world. He would be accused by Satan. He would be crucified, which, by the way, is the other option in place of stoning for rebellious Israelite sons. And he does all of this for us in our salvation. Just go read Isaiah 53. That's Isaiah 53 in a nutshell. So in his death, Jesus both atones for sin and removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, as far as the curse is found. He is both the high priest and the one who atones for sin and carries it far from his people. And in carrying that sin to the place of Azazel, he conquers Satan. So through this scapegoat, we are healed, we are made into disciples, and we sit at his feet. So as ironic as it might sound, it is thoroughly appropriate to say Jesus is the goat. And when we belong to him, when we have been healed by him, it often disrupts all kinds of relationships. It's not unusual to lose friends or family because of Jesus, and it is not at all unusual to be socially excluded or even to be despised because of Jesus You think you're better than us, Christian boy? You trying to make me look bad with all this morality stuff? But what he has given us is life in himself. And in turn, he has made us a part of a people who all share the same righteous scapegoat who took our sin upon him and has redeemed us. Think about that. We are a people dependent on a scapegoat. And he is righteous and good. And this scapegoat, the Lord Jesus Christ, unites us together as a true communion, not a sinful one, a true communion of peace in him. Well, let us pray. Father, you have given us life in your son, and that is an understatement. He has atoned for our sin and carried it as far as the curse is found. Thank you that we need not fear Satan, though he roars like a lion. For we are possessed by your Son through the Spirit. And we pray all of this in his wonderful name. Amen.